The U.S. is temporary sh- temporarily shutting down its embassy in Ukraine. The lead starts right now. At this moment, Senate leaders are getting briefed about Russia being able to launch an attack on Ukraine any day now. This is CNN learns from U.S. intel sources what they think a Russian invasion might look like. And even though the possible invasion is thousands of miles away, you could soon be feeling it at your corner gas station and the grocery store. We'll explain. Ben, rain, rain, please don't go away as Southern California experiences its worst drought in 1,200 years. The state is trying new ways to battle this climate crisis. Welcome to the Lean Up Jake Tap, where we start today with breaking news in our world lead. The United States is temporarily closing its embassy in Kyiv, Ukraine, and moving its remaining diplomats west amid growing fears that Russia will invade Ukraine in the coming days. There are now an estimated 130,000 or more Russian forces stretching along three fronts across Ukraine's border, according to two sources familiar with recent U.S. intelligence. And U.S. officials are now warning about what they think this attack could look like. Any invasion might start with air and missile attacks on Ukraine's key military infrastructure. Then a barrage of bombs and missiles directed at airfields and early warning systems, followed possibly by an onslaught of Russian troops moving across the border and encircling the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv within one to two days. That is according to a senior U.S. government official who has been briefed on the intelligence. A great concern, of course, that an untold number of innocent civilians could be caught in any crossfire. This is what U.S. officials say they fear. Meanwhile, today, the Ukrainian president, a former comedian, he seemed to be making fun of fears of a pending invasion. A U.S. official had told the Associated Press that Wednesday could be the precise day of the invasion. President Zelensky on Facebook today cited that day mockingly as a, a new holiday of some sort, a day of unity. CNN's Phil Manningly starts off our coverage today from the White House. President Biden returned to the White House faced with a world on edge. We are in the window and an invasion could begin, a major military action could begin by Russia in Ukraine any day now. That includes this coming week before the end of the Olympics. And a world in wait for Russian President Vladimir Putin's next move. It is entirely possible that he could move with little to no warning. Biden and his top advisors engaged in a flurry of calls and meetings as the administration's national security team gathered at the White House. But the world engrossed in an urgent effort to find an elusive off-ramp as massive Russian military drills continue in close proximity to Ukraine's border. Biden spoke by phone with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson this afternoon. His national security advisor briefed top lawmakers about the current state of play. We are prepared to continue to work on diplomacy, but we are also prepared to respond in a united and decisive way with our allies and partners should Russia proceed. Biden speaking to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Sunday, just one day after an hour-long phone call with Putin. Though officials said there was no breakthrough or shift in dynamics, as more than 100,000 Russian troops ring Ukraine's borders with Western leaders closely monitoring every word and statement. CNN reporting any Russian military action would center on airstrikes targeting Ukrainian military installations. In a carefully scripted exchange between Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, one potential signal. If we're ready to listen to some counterproposals, it seems to me that our possibilities are far from being exhausted. The statement coming after a top Ukrainian official hinted that a push for NATO membership, a key Russian red line, may be negotiable. 
what I'm saying here that we are flexible trying to find the best best way out. If if we have to go from through some serious uh, I don't know concessions, that's something we might do. It's an idea quietly floated by U.S. officials who privately acknowledge there is no near-term path for Ukraine's NATO membership. But it's also one Ukrainian officials quickly move to walk back. Yes, we would like to join NATO, and it will protect our integrity. And Jake, the decision to close the, at least temporarily, the U.S. embassy in Kiev followed significant actions over the weekend by the State Department to relocate the vast majority of staff from that embassy. The State Department said it was viewed as an absolute necessity because of the, quote, distinct possibility of a Russian invasion sooner rather than later, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Also, CNN's Nick Robertson, who's in Moscow. Clarissa, we hear this language from the Pentagon that a Russian invasion could happen with little to no notice. We know that U.S. intelligence claims that they anticipate if Russia invades, uh, the soldiers of Russian soldiers could encircle Kiev, where you are in just one or two days. Of course, U.S. intelligence is hardly infallible. And today on Facebook, Ukrainian President Zelensky seemed to be making fun of predictions that this invasion could come on Wednesday. So are people in Ukraine not worried? I think it's fair to say that the atmosphere here, I mean, it's almost like a bizarre split screen between what we're hearing coming from Washington and what we're seeing and hearing here on the ground. People feel that they've been living under the threat of Russian aggression for eight years. It is something they have become accustomed to. If you go out on the streets during the day, it's very calm. It's Valentine's Day here. Uh, There's a big party going on in our very hotel full of red heart balloons and and young couples. And And it feels pretty much like any other European capital. But when you listen to some of the things that President Zelensky said today, quips aside about tomorrow now being a a, a national unity public holiday as opposed to a day of invasion, um, there are also some signs that preparations are underway. Uh, We know that he issued a decree, for example, talking about how they're going to prepare some kind of a, a singular information site so that Ukrainians can Um, get a hold of vetted information that he's going to work to improve territorial defenses, that the armed forces are going to get a 30 percent pay rise. And we also heard today, Jake, from the mayor of Kiev, who said, again, no need to panic, but we are looking at making sure that we have enough shelters should there be some kind of a bombing attack. We are looking at planning how we would go about trying to do evacuations if that were to happen. And so what you see on the one hand is an effort to calm people down, but on the other hand also to make sure that they are prepared and they do acknowledge privately that a threat does exist. No one's pretending it's not. It's just a question of what the scale is. And Nick, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, met with Vladimir Putin today. He told the Russian leader, we're told, that he still sees chance for diplomacy. Uh, Tell us what you know about that conversation. Yeah, look, it was very well choreographed. It was on state television, so it was clearly intended to send a message to the people and, a, and an international message as well, which it which it did. Um, I think it's perhaps too soon to be able to interpret the entirety of the message, but the simple part of it, of course, is that it's open for diplomacy. You know, what strings are attached and how long does he keep want to keep his troops training on the, uh, on the borders of Ukraine and keep the threat of that military force and that military pressure up? That's not clear. 
I, I think, you know, we can we can over sort of emphasize the, the angle that this looked very theatrical. It was very staged down a long table um, that they could have had this meeting behind closed doors and it could have just been an announcement on television. But, it, you know, and, and maybe what seems a ham fisted way to us they are President Putin and his team really do seem to want to communicate this message that for them, diplomacy is still something they want. They would point out that they began this whole process back in December by putting forward their written demands of security guarantees, their security proposals. So their, their point underneath all of this is, look, we always wanted to talk about it. Uh, you've been misreading us with the troops, uh, but we're, we're still we're still ready to engage. And, and Clarissa, I mean, one of the things on that Russian list of demands included a guarantee uh, that um, Ukraine never be allowed to join NATO, a commitment about that. Today, we heard the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Congressman Adam Smith, suggest that uh, as a possible off-ramp, not that NATO would make the pledge, but uh, he wanted the Ukrainian government to announce that they will not join NATO, at least for some period of time. Um, what do Ukrainian leaders uh, have to say about ideas like that? It's interesting because you saw in Phil's piece that there was some, uh, you know, concern when the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK over the weekend seemed to imply that perhaps that would be something they would be willing to make a concession with regards to trying to push for NATO membership. That was rode back very quickly. We heard from the foreign minister this morning who again said we are definitely going forward with NATO membership. We heard also just uh, in recent hours from President Volodymyr Zelensky himself who again uh, uh, reaffirmed that commitment to try to push for NATO membership. But behind the scenes and in private conversations, it does seem uh, that there are many people pushing to have some kind of a concession made, some kind of an extraction that the Russians can claim as a victory that will allow a sort of off-ramp for everybody to de-escalate. And the issue of NATO membership for Ukraine could be a win for all sides because, as we've heard before, the reality is Ukraine is not going to get NATO membership anytime soon anyway. And so this would be something easy, but symbolically for Zelensky's government, very, very tricky uh, to pull off. And, and Nick, uh, I think there's even a question about whether or not such a move would deter Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I can already hear um, people in think tanks in Washington, D.C. saying you can't reward this kind of behavior by, by taking NATO membership for Ukraine off the table. Yeah, what we heard from uh, President Putin's spokesman this morning saying, look, uh, that would go some way to helping Russia, that they would want this formalized. They've talked about, you know, wanting these things in a legally binding, you know, long lasting uh you know, guarantee. And that's the sort of language that we heard earlier on today. But, uh, you know, part of a formulation. And I think the underlying part that the uh, spokesman is, is getting at here is that they see Ukraine as a problem, but it's only part of the bigger problem. And that is what they see as NATO's expansion. So this would go some way. It would have to be legally guaranteed with, you know, over a over a long time period. But there are other things that Russia is going to want. So those think tanks on that point are right. That's not the end of the road for them. All right. Clarissa Warden, Kiev, Ukraine, Nick Robertson in Moscow, Russia. Thanks to both of you. Let's talk about this with Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He traveled to Ukraine in January uh, with a bipartisan group of, of lawmakers. Senator, you said this afternoon that you are seeing signs that Putin may be finally uh, starting to understand the costs of an invasion. What, what do you mean? 
Well, I, I just take from that very scripted meeting with uh, Lavrov that he's trying to send a signal that there's possibly still an off-ramp here. The problem is, I agree with your correspondent, it's likely that he wants that commitment that Ukraine not join NATO in some kind of legally binding document. That is just simply not going to happen. We are not going to end 70 years of NATO's open door policy because uh, Vladimir Putin is throwing a fit. Um, he also may be getting new information now that he's come out of his bunker. I think he was sitting in Sochi for a while by himself, listening to only a handful of people, being told that he was going to be greeted as a liberator when he entered Ukraine. That is obviously not the case. This is going to be a bloody long-term insurgency. There are going to be body bags returning to Russia on a regular basis. And it may be that as he gets closer to the day that he has to decide if he's going in, he's getting better advice on exactly how bloody this is going to be for his own country. I don't know if you read the piece, but uh, Ann Applebaum uh, wrote a piece in The Atlantic over the weekend in which she talked about how the West needs to completely rethink the way it engages with Vladimir Putin, who does not respect uh, borders. He does not respect prior commitments that uh, his country has made in treaties uh, and that just needs to be far more punitive. Uh, first of all, just ending uh, the West's and, uh, and Europe's uh, dependence on the country for fuel, for power, uh, punishing him in terms of uh, just eliminating his ability to launder money, not allowing Russian oligarchs to purchase property in Miami, et cetera, that it just needs to be a much more, uh, he needs to be treated as a pariah. What do you make of that? Because it certainly seems like nothing else works. I mean, listen, this is obviously an incredibly complicated relationship, in large part because this is still the nation that has more nuclear weapons than any other in the world besides the United States. You cannot have no ability to talk with a country that commands uh, 40% of the world's nuclear arsenal. At the same time, um, Anne's right, uh, the whole world has become dependent on Russian petro money. Much of Europe runs on these oligarchs buying up real estate, gas still powers. Uh, 40% of some uh, European countries, we're all going to have to have a fundamental rethink of whether or not the price is worth it to be so dependent on Russian money. There's still plenty of money to buy real estate out of the Gulf if you want to turn your backs on the Russians for a decade or so. And that, in the end, is maybe one of the most important things you can do to alter Putin's calculus. He sort of thinks he can get it all. He thinks that he's going to be able to invade Ukraine still be able to sell gas and oil to Europe and still be able to have his oligarchs travel the world. We're going to have to make clear to him that's not the case, and we're going to have to convince our European friends to go along with us. Your Republican colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, said yesterday that Congress is not doing enough to deter Putin. Uh, take a listen. He's got 100,000 troops amassed on the Ukrainian border, and he's paying no price at all. So I'd like to hit him now for the provocation and have sanctions spelled out very clearly what happens to the ruble and his oil and gas economy. I think that's what's missing. We're talking way too much and we're doing too little. I mean, I've heard that argument a lot, uh, and it is, hard to, uh, it is hard to argue that the Biden administration's deterrence, uh, at least as of now, has been proven effective. So, listen, what the Biden administration is doing is pretty exceptional. I mean, this um, set of transatlantic and global sanctions that is being readied against Russia is going to be without precedent in world history. And it is going to deal a significant blow to the Russian economy. It is, I think, still factoring into Putin's decision making. It may be that we don't have deterrent power. And 
Senator Graham's suggestion that we put a small handful of sanctions on Russia today for its provocative actions, I mean, that certainly would bring some self-satisfaction, but I don't think we should overstate the impact of a small number of immediate sanctions on Putin's ultimate decision. I would rather have us backload the sanctions, make clear to Putin that if he steps any further into Ukraine, it's all going to come crashing down on him. I think that's what the Biden administration is reading. And listen, it may not be enough to change uh, Putin's mind. There's only so much we can do, but I can't imagine what else the Biden administration could be doing than what they already have. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it, sir. With Russia on the tipping point, you can forget about already high gas prices dropping anytime soon. So what can we expect at the pump? That's next. Plus, an irate passenger comes face to face with a coffee pot after he tries to bust into the cockpit and open the plane's door. That story next. And we're back with our money lead. A possible Russian invasion of Ukraine while thousands of miles away from the United States could have a real impact on the U.S. economy. One way that might happen, high gas prices becoming much higher. Right now, the U.S. is averaging $3.49 a gallon. That's up 18 cents a gallon since last month. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan. And Matt, we're already seeing the potential impact of this. Uh, Oil just hit its highest price since 2014. That's right, Jake. Um, you know, American consumers could be caught in the middle of this potential conflict. That's because Russia is an energy superpower. It's the number two producer of oil in the world. It produces more oil than Iraq and Canada combined. And J.P. Morgan warned that any disruption to oil flows from Russia to the rest of the world could easily send oil prices to $120 a barrel. Remember, supply is already failing to keep up with demand. That's why we've seen oil prices rapidly approach $100 a barrel for the first time since 2014, already up 27% so far this year. And we're only two months, we're not even two months into this year. Any further gains in energy prices will drive up prices at the pump for consumers. The national average at $3.49 a gallon, seven-year high, up six cents in just the past week. Now, I want to caution, there are a lot of unknowns here. We don't know if there's going to be an invasion. And if there is, we don't know if energy supplies from Russia are actually going to be threatened here. But, Jake, for now, nervous investors are buying oil first and asking questions later. Yeah, and we've seen the stock market, Matt, become really volatile over these invasion fears. And while... The stock market is not the economy. This could affect people's retirement and investment accounts. Yeah, Jake, that's right. Wall Street has already been rattled by this Russia-Ukraine situation. We've seen the stock market retreat for three days in a row. And I think the big concern here is what does this potential conflict do to the biggest problem in the economy? And that's high inflation. You know, consumer prices rising at the fastest pace in nearly 40 years. Uh, the cost of living is going almost straight up. And in January, we saw record price gains for new cars and trucks, fresh fish and seafood, restaurant meals, appliances. Higher energy prices would only drive up the cost to ship goods and to transport it via the air even more. And so, Jake, it's hard to see how this potential war helps inflation. In fact, it could make it even worse. All right, Matt Egan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Rudy Giuliani's never one to disappoint, but is Donald Trump's former personal attorney really getting ready to cooperate with the House January 6th committee? That story next. In the politics lead today, something. Something has Rudy Giuliani changing his tone towards the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. 
Donald Trump's former attorney indicated last month that he would not comply with the subpoena from the committee. Then Giuliani cited executive privilege and attorney-client privilege, but now committee aides say they expect Giuliani to, quote, cooperate fully with the subpoena. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, how much is Giuliani engaging with the committee? Over the past few weeks, Jake, Giuliani's attorney and the committee, they've been in early talks about ways Giuliani could potentially cooperate. Look, any engagement here is notable because, as you just said, Giuliani's legal team has previously said they weren't going to engage with the committee at all, citing privilege. But over the past few weeks, Giuliani's lawyer asked for a postponement of the subpoena date. He was granted that. And we've learned that one potential area where Giuliani might be willing to engage. He's not going to waive any privilege. He says it's not his to waive executive privilege or attorney-client privilege. But he said on this issue of potentially of election fraud, that is an area where a source familiar with these negotiations said Giuliani could potentially be able to cooperate. And we know from our previous reporting that over a dozen of the first requests on this subpoena have to do with allegations of election fraud. But at this point, Jake, there is absolutely no date for Giuliani to come in and testify. There is no agreement. He has not provided any documents. But these talks continue. They're in their early stages. As you noted, the committee has said they expect him to fully comply. Well, of course they do, because to say anything different would undermine the legitimacy, the power of that subpoena, and any potential contempt case they would want to bring against him. And and Paula also knew this hour in a separate investigation, uh, the Trump Organization's accounting firm, Uh, has announced that 10 years of the financial statements they made about the Trump organization are unreliable. What what does that mean? That's right. Breaking just a short time ago, the Trump organization and former President Trump's longtime accounting firm, Mazars, says that 10 years of accounting statements are no longer reliable. They came to this conclusion after investigations by the New York Attorney General, as well as some external information that they received. They've also notified Trump that they are dropping him as a client. Now, again, this is just breaking news, and so far there's no reaction to this from the Trump Organization. But, of course, Mazars has been at the center of many legal controversies involving the president and his accounting practices. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. New information shows you may need a second COVID booster shot sooner than you thought. That's ahead. In our health lead, the message today to parents from Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra, quote, just be safe, is obviously easier said than done for many families as school mask mandates rapidly disappear across the country. And the average number of children hospitalized with COVID is still around 2,500. As CNN's Alexandra Field reports, this all comes as parents very eager to get their toddlers vaccinated are now being told they may have to wait months. The wait for those who want a vaccine for the youngest children drags on, fueling frustration among parents. They're going to continue to have to remain vigilant if they're concerned about the risk of infection. The FDA announcing it will wait for more data before considering emergency use authorization for vaccines for children under five. Pfizer and BioNTech say they expect to have data on a three-dose regimen available in early April. That as more cities and states announce plans to abandon more pandemic-related precautions, though the CDC still has yet to issue new guidance on lifting restrictions. I think what you're going to see the CDC do, though, is come out with guidance that's more specific to communities Mm -hmm. that's based on what the local prevalence is. And that's probably where they should have been all along. 
New COVID cases are the lowest they've been since December, averaging fewer than 200,000 daily. But with an average of more than 2,300 Americans still dying daily, the federal government is pumping money into COVID therapies. The Army's striking an $855 million deal for AstraZeneca's antibody cocktail, which has seemed to work well against Omicron for people who are immunocompromised or can't be vaccinated. The Biden administration also working to deliver where needed other treatments that are still in short supply. We continue to uh, encourage every governor to do everything they can to make sure their their citizens don't get sick and need these treatments. And the more they do all the preventative measures, vaccination, masking, testing, the more they can assure themselves that they won't need these treatments later on as as uh, dramatically. The only surviving portion of a federal vaccine mandate takes effect today, requiring the first shot of a vaccine for healthcare workers in 24 states not previously covered by vaccine mandates. The Supreme Court upholding the mandate, which applies to facilities that receive federal funding, in a ruling last month. And, Jake, as states look to the federal uh, federal government to issue more guidance on rolling back COVID restrictions, Senator Joe Manchin again relaying that he will oppose the nomination of uh, Dr. Robert Califf to lead the FDA. This, of course, means that that vote will be tight and it will rely on GOP support. Jake? That's right. Manchin doesn't think he did enough uh, to prevent the opioid crisis. Uh, Alexander Fields, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Megan Ranney, a professor of emergency medicine and associate dean at Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Ranney, good to see you again. As you heard in Alexandra's report, parents who wanted to get their toddlers vaccinated as soon as possible are very frustrated. Is it possible that the FDA is being overly cautious here? You know, it's tough to know without seeing the data what the truth is, but here is what I and most other medical and public health experts believe. It is that the FDA is waiting until we know both safety and efficacy of these vaccines. So although this wait is unbelievably frustrating, and as a parent myself, I get how tough and annoying and anger-filled parents must feel who are parents of those under fives. At the same time, this wait allows us to be sure that these vaccines, once approved, are both safe and that they work. And that's just the most important thing. You don't want to put your kid through getting shots if you're not sure that it's going to make a difference. We also heard the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, say that the rollback of mask mandates means that policymakers are shifting the responsibility from the community to individuals. Do you think this means the, the whole idea of, you know, we're in this together is officially over? I don't know. I feel like the idea that we were in this together disappeared about a year ago, uh, if not earlier. We've seen a split in policies between different states for quite a while now. This is just another place where Americans are saying that we care largely about ourselves. Now, here's the good news, Jake. Honestly, by the time that most of these school mask mandates do uh, get lifted, which is in most states two to four weeks from now, I think that cases are going to be quite low. We've seen a dramatic drop in pediatric and adult cases just over the last week. So by the time those school mask mandates get lifted, even in schools with low vaccination rates of kids, I think it's going to be safe for kids to be in school without masks at that point. I do wish that we were showing up to take care of each other, but that would require all of us getting vaccinated as well. And we know that's not happening right now. A CDC study published Friday showed that booster shots were highly effective against moderate and severe COVID, 
two months after the dose, around 87% effective in preventing trips to the hospital. But protection did drop off substantially to 66% after four months and just 31% after five months. Do you think it might be time for people over the age of 65 to get their fourth shot, a, a second booster? The only group that at this point I would recommend a fourth shot for are the immunosuppressed, those folks who are unlikely to have manufactured adequate antibodies after their first, second, or third shots. For the over 65, for others who have multiple chronic conditions, please continue to mask up when you're out in public right now, particularly in those states, which are most of them, where cases are still relatively high, but it's too soon to go out and get another booster. A, there are other boosters on the horizon, potentially Omicron-specific, potentially other types. And secondly, we don't really know that a fourth booster is going to make that big of a difference. So at this point, with cases dropping, you can wait, again, unless you are immunosuppressed. Dr. Randy, good to see you again. Thank you so much. A decaf defense, how a coffee pot helps stop an unruly passenger who tried to open a plane's door while the flight was in midair. Then the western part of the U.S. has not seen a drought this bag since, well, since before the United States existed. That's next. International lead a cross-country flight turned into mid-air chaos involving an unruly passenger, the door to the plane, and a coffee pot. The American Airlines flight headed from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., ended up landing in Kansas City after the passenger tried to open the plane's door in mid-air, only to be met with the coffee pot-wielding flight attendant. CNN's Tom Foreman is here now. Tom, uh, what in the world led up to this? Well, they don't know what started. Uh, according to the affidavit, which we just received now from the Department of Justice, there is some disturbance in the back of the plane. There's this 50-year-old guy. He's six foot three, 240 pounds. His name is Juan Roberto Rivas, and he comes forward to the front, according to the affidavit, where he is muttering these sort of strange things. He's saying things that the flight attendants don't understand. He picks up some plastic utensils, which the affidavit says he's wielding like a shiv, uh-huh. threatening people. He starts shoving a, a service cart into them and kicking at it, according to this account. Um, then, while that's going on, he then grabs the boarding door and swings the handle open as if to open the front of the plane up like this. Flight attendant grabs a coffee pot and clocks him on the head. And then some of the passengers decide they need help, uh, one including a cop, some possibly some uh, uh, Air Force uh, people or military people. They rush up, they grab the guy punch him, grab him by the neck, take him to the ground, and restrain him with zip ties and with duct tape. He is now charged with one count of assaulting and intimidating a flight attendant. And, of course, the flight had to land in Kansas City to get him off and have him taken into custody. Last year, I know we saw nearly 6,000s of these kinds of air disturbance cases, all of them different, of course. The vast majority, uh, you know, blamed on masking and people having you know, problems with the, with the mask. Uh, is the rate the same this year? The rate at the moment looks a little bit lower. If you look at the numbers, it's a, it's a little bit lower across the board because we're only 45 days into the year. That's a small sample out of 365, so we don't know how it'll be for the year. I will say the mask issue continues to be a concern in part because they're retreating from masks in so many places on the land, but people get on planes and they're still being told, no, you must mask here. There's some concern that that's a flashpoint for some people. Also... Authorities are finding more guns coming through security. They're intercepting more guns. So people are concerned that if you put those two together, 
not a good combination. We don't really know why it's all happening, but we know it does keep happening. All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Neither weather forecasters nor Cincinnati Bengals fans got what they were predicting yesterday when it came to the Super Bowl. The Bengals, of course, lost to the Los Angeles Rams 23-20. to And weather forecasts, looking, forecasters looking for the hottest ever Super Bowl, well, they missed the mark as well. Sunday's game time temperature was 82 degrees, not 90 as had been forecasted, and not the record 84 degrees for 1973's Miami-Washington Super Bowl at the L.A. Coliseum, which in a convenient segue brings us to our Earth Matters series. As CNN's Stephanie Elam reports, not only does Cincinnati's Super Bowl drought continue, so does the very real physical drought wreaking havoc on Southern California. As the song goes, It never rains in Southern California. Okay, sometimes it does, but not reliably. We're going for periods of a long time without rainfall, and then bang, we'll get periods of very intense rainfall and flooding. Those swings can be drastic. In December, almost 10 inches of rain fell in Los Angeles, making it the second wettest December on record, according to NOAA. That was followed by the eighth driest January ever. Less than a tenth of an inch of rain fell. And as Los Angeles is once again in a drought, this one stretching into its third year, every drop counts. The priority in getting water into stormwater capture facilities is the water that's actually falling directly from the sky. With the county, for example, has storm control dams where they can actually store the water. Then some of the water is released to spreading grounds, open dirt basins that absorb the water, recharging underground aquifers. So as it slowly goes into the aquifer, it's actually cleaning that water as well. Now, when we pump it later on, we treat it again, and then it goes into our water distribution system. But obviously, when you talk about water, it's something very personal to people. It's something you put into your body. Water saved for those dry days. But with as much as 90% of L.A.'s water imported from Northern California, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and the Colorado River Basin, these stormwater capture programs aren't nearly enough to meet demand. The plan, which is in progress, is for 70% of L.A.'s water to be locally sourced by 2035. One of our major focuses is on recycled water. And in fact, this is a goal that the city of Los Angeles has to recycle 100% of all of the wastewater we have. And that will help us provide a local source of water that's sustainable and consistent. Where is that water coming from? The recycled water is coming through the the wastewater collection system across our whole network of 6,500 miles of sewer. Yeah, wastewater. But it gets treated a lot. Advanced treated, very high purity water, better than distilled water. And then supply it for a source of uh, groundwater infiltration. Other projects look to beautify while also capturing stormwater for irrigation in communities throughout the city. We're pulling that water that would otherwise go to the storm drains and we're reusing it locally. What also is just as important, these experts say, is for Angelinos to stay committed to conserving water. Water isn't free. We need to think of it as a commodity that is more valuable than any other natural resource we have. And just like we were so excited in December about the rain, it is just a different story so far this year through today, according to NOAA. 
We have only received nine one hundredths of an inch of rain this year so far, but this is not a problem limited to just Los Angeles. Across the West, a new study reported today says that for the period of 2000 to 2021, it was the driest period in 12 hundred years. And they're also saying that this mega drought is being made worse because of the human forces here in climate change. All of that keeping people really on in their minds about how they need to focus on this drought. Of course, we're supposed to get some rain tomorrow, Jake, but it'll just be an idea of rain. Nothing to change. All right, Stephanie Elam, thanks so much. She's already on thin ice, but the Russian figure skater who had the positive doping test will be allowed to skate tomorrow, but she will not be allowed to take the podium if she wins a medal. We'll explain. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, doping scandal outrage. Olympic athletes react to the news that a Russian skater who failed a doping test will be allowed to compete anyway. Former bronze medalist Adam Rippon joins us live. Plus, progressive pushback. One of America's most liberal cities starting to revolt over COVID restrictions. We're taking a deep dive into what appears to be a growing trend on the left now as well. And leading this hour, breaking news moments ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesman told CNN Putin is, quote, willing to negotiate. This comes just hours after the U.S. announced it is temporarily closing the U.S. embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. And U.S. intelligence sources tell CNN that Russia's attack, if it happens, could start, they anticipate, with airstrikes and end up with Russian troops in the Ukrainian capital within two days. Now, as CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us from Kyiv, U.S. officials are preparing for an onslaught of Russian ground troops moving across the Ukrainian border and fearing that innocent civilians could get caught in the crossfire. A first strike on Ukraine may start with a barrage of air and missile attacks. But according to U.S. officials... It's ground troops like these, Russian Marines now training in neighboring Belarus, that may eventually move across the Ukrainian frontier. As tensions mount, these latest images released by the Russian Defense Ministry are further jangling nerves. It may have the capability, but in Moscow, a decision to attack does not yet appear to have been made. In fact, this carefully choreographed scene on Russian state television looks designed to show that diplomacy remains very much on the table, a very long table. Is there a chance to reach agreement with our partners, President Putin asks his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, or is it just an attempt to drag us into endless negotiations, he says. I must say, there's always a chance, Lavrov responds. It seems to me that possibilities are far from exhausted. They should not be carrying on indefinitely, but at this stage, I would suggest they be continued and increased, he adds. It is an important sign. The Kremlin may still see negotiations bearing fruit. Others haven't given up either. In the Ukrainian capital, Germany's new chancellor was greeted warmly by the embattled Ukrainian leader, despite bitter disappointment that Germany hasn't done more to deter Russia. And amid the urgent and dire U.S. assessments of a Russian attack, perhaps in days, the Ukrainian president remains determined to keep his country calm, even declaring with irony a national celebration when Russian forces are said to be rolling in. We are told that February 16th will be the day of the attack. We will make it the day of unity. 
The relevant decree has already been signed. On this day, we will hoist national flags, put on blue and yellow ribbons, and show the world our unity. But Ukraine is also desperate to show the strength of its defenses, now conducting its own military drills and releasing dramatic videos like this one set to music. Faced with an overwhelming Russian threat, Ukraine seems at once at ease and bracing for an attack. Well, Jake, as Ukraine potentially Jake, as, as Ukraine potentially stands on the brink, there are some more assurances coming uh, to us from the Kremlin with uh, Vladimir Putin's spokesperson telling CNN that the Russian president remains willing to negotiate. It is a sign that at least perhaps coming from Moscow tonight, that there is room for more negotiation, that it does have a chance and that conflict in this region isn't necessarily inevitable. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Kyiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN Sam Kiley, who is live for us in Kharkiv, Ukraine, just 30 miles from the Russian border. Uh, Sam, how are Ukrainians preparing there? Well, Jake, uh, it's very difficult to tell. We've just driven all the way up to that border with Russia uh, to about uh, 20 miles short uh, on the border to, of the Russian city of Belograd, where the uh, on the Russian side, the First Guards tank army, uh, which on paper can muster some 50,000 men as well as up to 600 tanks, Jake, uh, are supposedly mustering. And we've seen evidence of that in terms of our own uh, research and, and satellite imagery and so on. But on the Ukrainian side, nothing, absolutely nothing. Just long lines of Ukrainian trucks uh, waiting to cross into Russia. Not much traffic coming back the other way. In terms of a Ukrainian military presence, just a handful of border guards uh, showing us away from that uh, location because they don't want it to be filmed uh, excessively. Uh, the border marked with very thin fencing, no sign of entrenchments, no sign of Ukrainian defences, uh, because this is a country that, as any local here will con tell you, was invaded by Russia back in 2014 when they lost the Crimea that was annexed to Russia and when Russian-backed separatists have carved out uh, the Donbass region. So they say that they're living in a perpetual state of invasion. But that doesn't really fully cover why it is. It doesn't appear that the 200,000-plus Ukrainian army doesn't appear to be on a war footing. Partly, I think they're hiding themselves away uh, from scrutiny, from international scrutiny, so that they can be a surprise if there is some kind of a a Russian incursion, but above all because the president here is insisting he doesn't believe that one is imminent. Even today, uh, he put out a Facebook um, page and a video celebrating uh, Valentine's and uh, alongside his wife, the first lady of Ukraine, as he likes to call her, uh, uh, on top of uh, those uh, announcements that uh, Matthew talked about, which include a substantial 30% pay rise for so serving soldiers starting next month, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley uh, in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's talk about all this with Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He is the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. So this morning you were briefed by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Are you satisfied with what you're hearing from this administration? And do you think an attack is, is indeed imminent? Well, I, I did get the sense that time is running out for diplomacy. He did mention that Foreign Minister Lavrov had uh, talked about more time uh, of course, we always want the diplomats to talk, uh, but the rhetoric is one thing and the action is another. 130,000 Russian troops are now surrounding Ukraine like a noose. 
um, and they're in, in very frontal attack positions. And, and the tanks are there and the planes are doing joint exercises. We hear this February 16th date floated around uh, or after the Olympics. One thing is, is certain, Putin um, knows this may be his one chance to take back Ukraine. He has uh, weakened NATO and he wants the Black Sea for energy. Um, I, um, you know, I, I'm falling less and less optimistic we can reach an agreement. We haven't had proper deterrence in my judgment. And uh, I think uh, Putin has made his calculation. And one thing interestingly too, Jake, is that as we see uh, Putin, he's surrounding himself with a small group of, of his traditional hawks uh, that want to go to war and want to invade Ukraine. You just made reference to the February 16th, the Wednesday day. Uh, a U.S. official told the Associated Press that they thought uh, that that might be the day that Putin orders the invasion uh, into uh, Ukraine. Uh, earlier today, President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, kind of made fun of that idea, talking about it being a holiday, uh, not taking it very seriously. Have you heard that from any sort of reliable source that Wednesday might actually be the day of a potential invasion? There has been some reporting about this date, although I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I think it's only up to Putin when he decides to do this. Now that he's fully prepared to invade, and it's been building since last March, uh, and almost for a year now, and we've done little uh, to nothing to stop it. And so um, I do think it's more imminent. Um, I do think uh, the decision will be made, you know, soon. We have uh, had intelligence on specific plans uh, in a very aggressive timetable that starts really right now. And so I, you know, I think we're in that window, as uh, Jake Sullivan talks about, where he can strike. Uh, and it would happen very quickly, Jake. It would be a massive cyber attack taking down all the infrastructure, followed by the tanks rolling in, and then the planes. It would probably only last 48 to 72 hours. Yeah, CNN's Jim Shooter talked to a senior U.S. official um, who'd been briefed on the intelligence, and that official said that uh, Russia's plan seemed to be to invade Ukraine for multiple points, including uh, uh, the beginning of a, of a barrage of missiles and bomb attacks. Then they would encircle the capital of Kiev on the ground with troops. Um, is that consistent with what you've been hearing as well? Right. There are three major areas. One is just north of Kiev by about 60 miles, uh, where they're doing Belarus joint uh, exercises. Uh, there is uh, on the Donbass region on the east side, and then, of course, around Crimea, where the Black Sea is. Uh, they would all converge. Um, I think uh, they would go to Kiev, uh, maybe try to pull off some uh, political coup. Uh, the false flag operation, I think, I think it was masterful to diver divulge that uh, uh, classified space to let people know they were going to try to go into false pretenses, um, not unlike what Hitler did when he invaded Poland. And so, um, you know, look, they're, they're surrounding Ukraine, and I don't see a whole lot of deterrence to stop it at this point. And then um, the question is going to be what happens after. And I think it's going to be a, a resistance movement. And uh, Congress and the administration will be looking at heavy sanctions on Russia. Biden spent 62 minutes talking to Putin over the weekend. There was no real breakthrough, we're told, by the White House. At, at this point, hours or just days before uh, a supposed attack. Do you still think that that imposing uh, severe sanctions right now would stop this attack? You know, it may be too little too late, Jake, but, you know, I've been sounding the alarm on this for months. And, you know, the thing is, um, if you don't have any deterrence, he will take advantage of it. I think 
I think the sanctions uh, should have been put in place to deter bad behavior. He has been provocative. He has built up his military, you know, on uh, around Ukraine and taken very aggressive actions with no real cost at hand. Uh, I just hope the administration, if the invasion does take place, is will keep their word about these sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We asked Jake Sullivan about that today. He assured us that would happen. Uh, but if there's a presidential waiver, I worry the president could waive it again. Congressman Mike McCall, Republican of Texas, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Why would Vladimir Jake. Putin line up 130,000 troops on the border with Ukraine if he did not plan to invade? We'll discuss his other possible motives next. Plus, what are Olympic athletes' favorite Chinese foods? How many dumplings are they eating? Forget doping or censorship. Those are the questions being asked by Chinese government news media. That's ahead as we go behind China's wall. Back now with our breaking news. The United States is temporarily closing the U.S. embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. But earlier today, Russia's foreign minister told Russian President Vladimir Putin there's a, quote, chance for diplomatic dialogue, and he recommends such efforts continue. Let's bring in CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser, who served as the Washington Post's Moscow bureau chief. Susan, you know Russia, you know Putin. Explain what Putin is considering right now. Is there any way at this point you think he could be deterred from ordering an invasion? Well, look, Putin is the decider in that system, and I think that's important to note. Uh, he has made it possible to make a decision at the last minute by moving this enormous military force into place. And what we're hearing from uh, you know, intelligence analysts in the U.S. government is that uh, that force is largely ready to go, prepared to strike, even moving uh, into forward positions. This is something they can sustain for some time, but not forever. So a go, no go decision will have to be made by by President Putin sometime soon. Uh, you know, remember, Jake, this is not the first war that Vladimir Putin has threatened. Uh, you know, from the very beginning of his tenure, he has seen what he views as success with with war. And so, you know, whether that was in Chechnya inside Russia itself or previously invading Ukraine in 2014, so it's it's not purely theoretical here. And he has not shown in the past any evidence that the threat of sanctions by the West uh, has deterred him in advance from taking an action like this. So according to two sources familiar with recent U.S. intelligence, Russia has amassed more than 130,000 troops at the Ukraine border. Would Putin build such a force and, and put them there for some other reason beyond invading? Well, look, I mean, you know, I think one of the, the challenges right now is that, you know, there's a tendency to see this in a sort of black and white war, no war, either, uh, you know, he sends in tanks and it's a sort of, you know, World War Three hellscape or, uh, you know, everything's going to be fine and they'll just go home. And, and, and many people think it's still quite possible you have something in between, which is to say different kinds of military incursions, stepped up cyber attacks, uh, ways to destabilize the Ukrainian government. You know, I do think that that Putin has numerous paths by which he can claim victory here short of full-out invasion of Kiev. Uh, and, and that would primarily be, can he topple or otherwise constrain the pro-Western government uh, in Ukraine right now, which is a key goal of all this in the first place? Right. He would love for either Ukrainian President Zelensky or NATO to say, Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Um, but Zelensky today reiterated that Ukraine intends to join NATO, what effect does that have on Putin's decision making? 
Look, first of all, I think it's extremely important to say this is a manufactured crisis by Vladimir Putin. It's not that Ukraine was about to join NATO. In fact, Putin has wildly succeeded even by getting us to talk over and over and over again about NATO. Ukraine was no closer to joining NATO today or before this invasion force was launched than it was back in 2014 when Putin invaded, when it was since 2008 when Ukraine was given this ambiguous commitment that at some point in the future, maybe you could possibly become a member. So it's not really about joining NATO. I I would also point people to Putin's own words in which he has suggested that uh, in a pamphlet that was circulated to the entire Russian armed forces, that Ukraine really doesn't have legitimacy as an independent country and that Putin believes that in some ways it should still be a part of Mother Russia. It's very hard to negotiate with that. And it's not about NATO in and of itself. Susan Glasser, thank you so much. Appreciate it. They say all politics is local. And in one of the most progressive cities in the United States, three school board members are about to find out just how true that is. Stay with us. International lead, three school board members in one of the most progressive cities in the United States are facing a recall election tomorrow for essentially leaning too far left. Some parents say the San Francisco school board is putting too much attention on less important issues, such as renaming 44 schools, instead of focusing on improving education and creating a plan to reopen classrooms. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, this Bay Area battle is part of the Mounting frustration with COVID restrictions, frustration not only in red parts of the country, but blue ones as well. A deep blue bastion. San Francisco voted 85% for Biden. Pelosi lives here. So did Harris and Newsom. So did Ginsburg and the Grateful Dead. But there's trouble in this aspirant progressive paradise. Tomorrow, these three liberal local school board members face a recall vote organized by these two liberal locals. We were both single parents during COVID. Their biggest beef, the city's schools were closed by COVID for over a year. Even as late as Feb 2021, not a single school site was ready for reopening. What people don't give us credit for is, you know, participating in this low COVID rate that the city in San Francisco has been, you know, praised for. Our children, our choice! We're used to red state rebellions against COVID closures. This one's very blue. Parents of every sort, every uh, economic class, uh, every racial background, every ideological background, they want the schools open. Seven in ten Americans now say we just need to get on with our lives. A slew of once COVID-cautious Democratic governors now say they'll ease off on the mask mandates. Phil Murphy, oh so narrowly re-elected last November in deep blue Jersey, just announced an impending end to mandatory masks in school. We are stating affirmatively that we can responsibly live with this thing, and that's, that's the reason we're doing it. San Fran-born Governor Gavin Newsom up for re-election this fall lifts California's indoor mask mandate tomorrow. But there's much more to this than masks. San Francisco's progressive DA faces a recall vote in June. What you're seeing in San Francisco is emblematic of a split that has developed in the Democratic Party of how far the party can go on a whole series of issues that deal with racial equity without uh, losing its ability to build a national majority. 
Karen Bass, a Dem now running for Los Angeles mayor, just said she'll fund, not defund, the LAPD. LA's progressive DA is facing a fervent recall effort. And back to that school board recall. San Francisco's left-leaning newspaper supports it. Competence matters, wrote the editorial board, even for progressives. This, they say, was incompetent. While classrooms remained closed, the board tried to rename 44 schools, among them Alamo Elementary. They thought it was named for the battle, actually. It's just poplar tree in Spanish. These individuals are using this as an opportunity to create you know, media attention and controversy so they can you know, improve their careers rather than focus on educating our kids. The fundamental thing you have to do in, as an elected official is serve the people that you're meant to serve. But there are a couple of things we should consider before we get too carried away with this idea of a Dem pivot away from the progressive. One is recalls. A recall is very different to a successful recall. Remember, Governor Gavin Newsom survived one here last year. So we'll keep an eye on how those recall efforts go. The second is COVID. Listen, the numbers are still very high, but they are falling very, very fast. And those Democrats rolling back on restrictions will say that this isn't about politics. This is about science. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Let's bring in Republican strategist David Urban and former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's a new CNN political commentator and a, and a Democrat. Welcome to the lead, uh, Mayor, Mayor Lance Bottoms. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. So let me start with you, Madam Mayor. As you heard from Nick Watt, San Francisco, obviously a progressive enclave. But even there, it seems many folks have lost patience with overly restrictive COVID rules, especially regarding kids in schools. What are your thoughts? Well, I think what you're seeing in San Francisco is really reflective of where the country is. People want elected officials to be focused on making sure our communities are safe. Also, that we are being thoughtful about what our priorities should be. And from everything that I've read and seen on that's happening in San Francisco is that this was less about politics and more discussion around competence that in the midst of a pandemic, and trying to get kids back in school, trying to make sure that our teachers and, and everyone involved in the education system had what they needed, they were having another discussion on an important topic, but not a topic that it appears should have been the priority. And I think that the, the sentiment of San Francisco, what you're seeing in San Francisco is being seen all across the country. People want elected officials to focus, and that does not uh, appear to have been the case with this Board of Education. And David, only six states in the entire U.S. still have indoor mask mandates in, in place in perpetuity. They're all run by Democrats. We have Hawaii, uh, New Mexico, Washington State, and Puerto Rico, the only ones left to announce whether or not they're going to lift their indoor mask rules. Do you think Republicans criticizing these mask mandates uh, in, in the upcoming elections, which we know is going to happen, Will it still be an effective cudgel against Democrats if those restrictions sure. are, are lifted in the next few months? Sure, sure, Jake. Let's face it. That, look, the Democrats got this wrong. Let's just admit it. The mayor's smart. She's she just say, look, we got it wrong. Last night, everyone watched the Super Bowl, right? The servers, the help, everyone's it's it's there. They're wearing masks, but the governor and everyone else has no masks. The 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 hypocrisy is amazing. And, and in schools, right, kids are the least least vulnerable to really serious COVID, um, uh, you know, uh, the effects of COVID, but the, yet 
they're the most vulnerable, the most susceptible to all the negative effects of masks, not being in school, mental health crisis. I mean, we see this in report after report after report, the negative impact of kids not being in schools, of kids wearing masks, all the mental health thing, kids being left behind in terms of learning and education. And the Democrats blew it. And in blue states and red states, parents get this issue. They get it in Virginia. They're getting it in San Francisco. They're getting it across America. And Madam Mayor, um, obviously, two years ago when we knew almost nothing about this pandemic uh, is very different than today. Uh, you were leading the city of Atlanta at the onset of the pandemic. You, you issued some of the first mask mandates. Again, we didn't know <clears throat> a lot back then. Um, the CDC has yet to issue new guidelines on masks. Um, do you think that the governors that are lifting the mask mandates now in places like New Jersey and elsewhere are listening to the science or are they listening to the polling uh, as indicated uh, by some, you know, what we're seeing uh, with angry parents all over the country? I absolutely believe that they are listening to the science the same way that we did in Atlanta when our <laughs> governor did not. So in Atlanta, at the beginning of the pandemic, we convened a cross-section of people, public health experts, university officials, school officials, business leaders, large companies, small businesses, to give us a set of guidelines that we could follow so that we wouldn't make rash decisions based on what we thought we knew, guided by those guidelines and the metrics that we set in place in December, Late, late November, early December, we removed our recommendation for a mask mandate in Atlanta. Personally, I was conflicted by it, but the science said it needed to be removed. When you follow the science, when you follow the data, it removes emotion. So I completely disagree. Mm-hmm. I don't think well, that- Well, Jake, I would, just, I, would, I would ask the mayor, I would ask the mayor- We made decisions- based on science, and those were sound decisions. Go ahead, David. So, so Jake, I'd ask, the, I'd ask the mayor to comment on Randy Weigarner, the president of AFT, the most powerful teachers union in America, that said kids should not have masks removed in schools until there's zero transmissions. Madam Mayor, do you agree with that comment? I can't believe. That's not science. That's politics. What I would say is that I have two kids in school Two, I have four. I have two who are in elementary school. It is far easier for them to wear masks than it is for my older two. They are more compliant and it is less about them than it is about the teachers and the cafeteria workers and the bus drivers. In fact, a security guard at their school, a very young man with a young child just died of COVID about three days ago. So if it means that keeping people like that security guard and other people in schools safe, my children are willing to wear masks and I am willing to ask them to wear masks. David, we're out of time, but there's one thing I do want to say, and I'm sure sure David uh, and Mayor Lance Bottoms, I'm sure we all agree. If you're watching this and you have not gotten vaccinated and you have not gotten your eligible children vaccinated, please get them vaccinated. That's the way we open everything back up safely. That's the way we save Lives, David Urban, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, thanks to both of you, really appreciate it. Sarah Palin tried to take on the New York Times, but now a judge weighs in. Is it a decision that's fit to print? Find out next.
In our politics lead now, new revelations about the 2016 presidential race by the special counsel appointed by former Trump administration attorney general Bill Barr. In 2019, as you might remember, Barr first assigned U.S. Attorney John Durham to investigate the origins of the Russia investigation. And then before Barr left office in 2020, he made Durham a special counsel. Durham has since indicted Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, as well as a Russian analyst, both of them for allegedly lying to the FBI. Both of them are pleading not guilty. Guilty. Now, in a court filing late Friday night, Durham says that he found new information about researchers who supported Hillary Clinton. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. And Evan, what do we know about these researchers for, for Hillary Clinton and, and what Durham is learning about their activities? Well, Jake, so these, these researchers were uh, supporters of Hillary Clinton. And what they believed that they saw was uh, suspicious connections between uh, uh, Russian-made phones and uh, Donald Trump's uh, you know, office at the uh, Trump Tower, as well as what they said was uh, suspicious traffic with uh, the executive office of the president. Now, this is the allegation that, that Durham says uh, was being used essentially to dirty up uh, the former president, President Trump, uh, trying to get the, the intelligence community essentially to believe that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians. Again, all of this data that these researchers had access to, uh, they essentially used it uh, essentially just to, just to isolate it to Donald Trump and, and show these types of uh, Internet traffic uh, between these Russian-made made phones and uh, the, the executive office of the president. Durham says that none of that is true, none of this is suspicious, that this is just data that happens all the time, and these phones were being used even before Donald Trump became president. Okay, and Durham made this revelation in a court filing late Friday night related to Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, whom he has a... Right. Uh, received, a, he's gotten an indictment against Sussman. Sussman right. says he's not guilty. What's the backstory on, on Sussman? Well, Sussman was uh, the campaign lawyer for uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign and Democrats. He never disclosed, according to, to Durham, who he was working for when he met with the FBI. Uh, this is uh, part of what, what this filing was for, was part of Sussman's case. And one of the things Durham says is, is, that, is, that, is that Sussman provided this information to an agency, the CIA, Showing some of this, uh, some of this data, trying again to get the, the intelligence community to believe that Donald Trump was in cahoots with the Russians. All right, curious sir and curious sir, Evan Perez. Thank you so much. Breaking news in our national lead now: Sarah Palin's defamation case against the New York Times will soon be thrown out. The judge announced he plans to dismiss the case, even though jurors continue to deliberate. The judge said that Palin's team did not prove actual malice when the Times erroneously included a Palin-linked group's map to a 2017 editorial titled America's Lethal Politics. Judge Rakoff saying, quote, this is, a ver- this is an example of very unfortunate editorializing on the part of the Times. Having said that, that is not the issue before the court. Jurors were just sent home. They will return tomorrow to keep deliberating, even though their decision may not make any difference. Coming up, she tested positive for a banned substance, but a star Russian figure skater will get to compete tomorrow. However, there is a catch if she wins any medal. Stay with us. In our sports lead, 15-year-old Russian figure skater uh, Kamila Valieva has been cleared to compete again after failing a doping test in November. But there will be no medal ceremony if she places in the top three. 
Now the teenage prodigy's incredible feat of being the first woman to land a quadruple jump at the Games is overshadowed by this mess, including Russia's brazen disregard for rules and the International Olympic Committee's failure to actually penalize in any real way Russia for its athletes' repeated doping. Joining us now to discuss is Adam Rapon. He's a former Olympian who won bronze in the 2018 Games. He now coaches Team USA's Mariah Bell. Adam, you tweeted, quote, the Russian Olympic Committee has miserably failed its athletes and embarrassed themselves on the world stage yet again, all caps. My heart breaks for the Russian athletes competing in Beijing who will have everything they do at this Olympics questioned. Um, do you think Russia is capable of embarrassment or, or will the country continue to break these doping rules if they're not just taken out of the Olympics entirely for at least a games or two? Well, I think they need to be taken out entirely. Um, obviously, you know, the message is not getting through. And, and the punishment of just not being able to compete under their flag and then getting to change their anthem as like the only sort of like consequence they need to face is, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's laughable from the point of view of the athlete. I'm sure the viewer at home is sort of like, aren't they not supposed to be here? And that's kind of the feeling that we have, you know, we, we want the athletes that compete clean to be able to compete here at the Olympics. That's, that's fair. You know, we, we know what that's like to like spend your whole life to prepare for an Olympic games and for the fault of someone else for you not to compete, that would suck. But the Russians have repeatedly shown that they don't want to play by the rules. And I can just tell by the discourse online that, you know, I think they just feel like everyone's doping and that like, they're the ones just getting picked on. When, you know, you know, we're over here at home. I'm afraid when I'm when I was competing, I was afraid to take like a, a Valley Nature multivitamin from CVS. Yeah, it's it's like two completely different ways of, of, of thinking of how to prepare for sport. American sprinter Shikari Richardson was suspended from the Tokyo Olympics. You might remember after testing positive for marijuana, she tweeted, quote, can we get a solid answer on the difference of her situation and mine about Valieva? My mother died and I can't run and was also favored to place top three. The only difference I see is I'm a black young lady. Do you think there is a double standard, not just with race, but for the type of drugs that the Olympic Committee deems suspension worthy? Well, I mean, this definitely brings up like the double standard of like Shakari's situation versus Camilla. That, you know, Shakari's like a young black woman who we all wanted to like cheer for and we're so excited for like her personality is amazing. She's an incredible athlete. She tests positive for marijuana immediately. You saw that the U S anti-doping agency is like, you can't compete. This is a positive substance. Shakari the next day on TV, apologizing, taking accountability. Well here, you know, the doping agency in charge of Camilla's, uh, positive test is RUSADA, the Russian anti-doping agency, which first suspended her and then lifted the suspension the same day. So it's two different doping agencies who have two different, you know, protocols and, and, and live on two different integrity standards. Um, but uh, what I think of the, the ruling that the CAS, the court of arbitration here in Beijing made is, I, I mean, I think it's a joke. How does somebody with a positive test still get to compete in the Olympic Games? The whole point of the Olympic Games is that it's a level playing field and that everybody here is competing clean. I mean, I don't know where the Russians are getting their medical advice. It feels like the team doctors like Elizabeth Holmes or something. 
Adam <laughs> inside the Olympic bubble in Beijing. Thank you so much. It's always great to see you. Turning to our Behind China's Wall series, in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games, the Chinese government hopes to use the games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and its crimes against humanity and, of course, its genocide. The jarring contrast between Chinese state media and foreign reporters on full display at this weekend's press conference with the International Olympic Committee. Officials were peppered with questions about Russia's doping scandal and peng shui by foreign reporters, and they were thrown sweet little softballs from Chinese state media. CNN's David Culver is in Beijing. David, the whole purpose of the media is different in communist countries. What were Chinese state media reporters asking? But, Jake, they were asking about everything but the so-called sensitive issues here. So many controversies surrounding these games, you and I have talked about them. And so when you have an opportunity to question officials, you use that moment to seek meaningful answers. I want you to listen now to a comparison between what a foreign journalist asked, followed by a Chinese state media question. Just on the Camilla Valieva case, can you explain um, why it took six weeks for this positive test result to come to light. So what is the favorite dish among all the athletes? How many of the roast ducks are being served? That second question was how many roast ducks are being served? And it would be laughable if it wasn't multiple times that we heard this. In fact, we come through dozens of questions over several days. State media here from various outlets, government controlled, They were asking a range of things from how much do the high quality venues and good service contribute to the athletes' strong performances and when will the Japanese ice prints be at the exhibition gala? The issue isn't that they're highlighting some of the positive aspects of these games, Jake, but rather that they're using that to deflect entirely from human rights concerns and several other allegations that are really serious here. And how does this filter out to the Chinese public? Yeah, officials here, they really feared that the spotlight of foreign media during these games would hit on those sensitive topics, right? And so to to keep that from filtering out into the public, they're using these soft questions to get answers that really just shower praise on this, the host country. And and there's a strategy to use the only positive answers. Perhaps you'll hear some of the athletes give what is really perhaps just an innocent response and some of the officials too. uh, And those are then taken and put into reports and combined all together And they're essentially using them as self-affirming messages to say to their own domestic audience, see, the folks coming in, they do like us, they appreciate us, and they say, we're doing a great job. Jake. All right, David Culver in Beijing, thank you so much. Appreciate it. If you really want to surprise your ex with a special delivery on this beautiful Valentine's Day, well, the U.S. government has an interesting suggestion for you. That's next. The United States is suspending avocado imports from Mexico after an American food inspector was threatened. According to the USDA, the U.S. inspection official got a threatening phone call on his government-issued phone while doing his job carrying out an inspection in the western Mexican state of Michoacan. That is the only Mexican state allowed to import avocados to the United States. In the past six weeks, more than 135,000 avocados from that state have been exported to the United States. It's estimated to be a $3 billion a year industry. Holy guacamole. Here's an unusual way to celebrate Valentine's Day. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, tweeted, Valentine's Day can still be fun, 
Even if you broke up, do you have information about a former or current partner involved in illegal gun activity? Let us know, and we will make sure it's a Valentine's Day to remember, unquote. And the ATF is not the only law enforcement agency offering a special delivery this Valentine's Day. A North Carolina Sheriff's Department posted a Valentine's special on Facebook for exes who have outstanding warrants. Jilted partners just need to share their ex's location, and the sheriff will take care of the rest, including, quote, a set of limited edition platinum bracelets, free transportation with a chauffeur, a one-night minimum stay in our luxurious five-star accommodations, and this special is capped off with a special Valentine's dinner, unquote. You know, I never saw Valentine's Day as a time to get revenge, but I guess every rose has its thorns. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.